it's six o'clock on the dot and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, December 7th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, Governor Evers has signed a bill that will require financial literacy courses for all Wisconsin high school students. Fearing more PFAS contamination, supervisors on the county board are attempting to renegotiate their airport leasing deal with the Air National Guard. And in the second half, a closer look at open records law, a report on mid-December fishing conditions, and an update on the flamingos as they prepare for next season. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's biodiversity is at greater risk than nearly every other Great Lakes state, an environmental advocacy group claims. According to the Defenders of Wildlife, the threat of biodiversity loss in Wisconsin means we rank number 11 compared to states across the country. The group cites numerous issues, including climate change, invasive species, habitat destruction, overexploitation, and pollution, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Among the Great Lakes states, only Pennsylvania ranks more severely than Wisconsin. In other environment news, the Army Corps of Engineers is planning a billion-dollar project to keep invasive Asian carp out of the Great Lakes, according to the Wisconsin Public Radio. The project will beef up existing barriers along the Des River near Joliet, Illinois. It will include noisemakers, a bubble curtain, electric barriers, and a flushing lock. Bubble curtains transmit sound through the water, deterring carp and other fish. And flushing locks use water pressure to force organisms downstream while allowing barge traffic. The first phase of the eight-year project will begin next year, according to project manager Scott Whitney. The Republican-led legislature may seek to revise the state constitution. That's in order to thwart the governor's office and the liberal majority on the state Supreme Court, a top lawmaker says. Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu of Oostburg said that constitutional amendments could preserve conservative policies such as voter ID rules. The governor cannot veto constitutional amendments. Instead, amendments have to pass in two successive sessions of the legislature and win voter approval in a statewide election. A study of the potential for expanding Amtrak service to Green Bay, Madison, and Eau Claire has received $2.5 million in federal funds, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Senator Tammy Baldwin announced the funding Wednesday through the Federal Rail Administration's Corridor ID program. The study is the first step in accessing the $66 billion allocation for rail expansion under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. In addition to new services to Madison, Green Bay, and Eau Claire, the study will also look at the possibility of expanding service on the Hiawatha Line to Chicago and the Empire Builder to the Twin Cities. The state's alcohol industry will undergo some significant changes, thanks to a bill Governor Evers signed into law yesterday. Part of the bill will revise rules regarding the manufacturing, distribution, and sale of alcoholic beverages. It also creates an agency that will regulate those sectors, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Another part of the bill adds regulations on the licensing of wedding barns and axe-throwing establishments if they serve alcohol on the premises. 
One provision also sets a temporary closing time of 4 a.m. for bars in 14 southern and southeastern counties, including Dane, during the Republican National Convention this summer. According to noise monitoring from Madison residents and Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin, F-35 fighter jets are even louder than the county and Air Force estimated. According to the Air Force, maximum noise levels at Ridgeway Church would reach 114 decibels. That's the equivalent of a live rock concert. But since noise monitoring began two years ago, that estimate was exceeded 45 times. According to the CDC, anything above 120 decibels can cause immediate harm to your ears. Prolonged exposure to anything over 70 decibels may also damage your hearing. With that in mind, Stephen Klafka, the environmental engineer with Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin, sent a a list of demands to the county airport. He says they need to monitor noise levels and collect their own data, determine the actual noise levels of F-35s, and update their noise exposure map to reflect those findings. That way, they can determine which Madison residents qualify for noise abatement. We'll have more on the Dane County Regional Airport later in the show. Madison-based insurance company TrueStage and a union representing part of its workforce have reached a tentative agreement on a labor contract, the State Journal reports. The agreement would end nearly two years of heated negotiations that included an employee walkout last spring. Catherine Bartlett Muvihill, president of Office of Professional Office and Professional Employees, International Union Local 39, said today that the company, formerly known as CUNA Mutual Group, reached an agreement with the union Wednesday afternoon. The union represents about 450 True Stage employees. True Stage, which employs about 1,700 people in the Madison area and 4,200 worldwide, confirmed Thursday that an agreement had been reached. You can't buy legal cannabis in Wisconsin, but soon you'll be able to get a lift at Madison's first ever Kava Bar, according to the Capital Times. Rooted Insanity is set to open by the end of the year at 2007 Atwood Avenue, says owner Hannah Saxman. Kava is a tropical root popular in the Pacific Islands that produces psychoactive results when ingested as tea. Saxman characterizes the effects of kava as a, quote, euphoric social feeling. The the lounge will also serve mocktails, coffee, tea, and cacao, the Capital Times reports. Now, on to today's top stories. Governor Tony Evers had an extremely busy day yesterday, vetoing six bills and signing dozens more into law. One of those new laws requires that all high school students in Wisconsin receive some instruction in financial literacy. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the details. Last year, Braden Jackson was a high school senior. He spent some of his time outside the classroom working at a local bank in Oconomowoc. So I get to see firsthand people of all ages come in with various bank questions. I struggle with people my age who are 18 to 20. They struggle to even fill out a basic deposit slip. But giving young Wisconsinites access to basic financial education is the focus of one of many bills signed into law yesterday by Governor Evers. Under the bill, all high schoolers in Wisconsin would be required to complete at least one half credit of personal financial literacy in order to graduate. Senator Joan Balwig, a Republican from Markison, was one of the authors on the bill. 
is very important that students are prepared, just like we know we need to make sure that they can read adequately and, and do math adequately. But financial literacy is something that all students are going to use moving forward. According to a recent report from the Center for Financial Literacy at Champlain College, just seven states require that students take a semester-long financial literacy course in order to graduate. Those states scored an A on their financial literacy scorecard. Wisconsin scored a C. While a law passed in 2017 requires that some personal finance topics be taught, implementing that education varies from district to district, the study finds. The bill passed yesterday would require a more formalized curriculum. Wisconsin is one of the growing number of states working to take a more substantive approach to financial literacy for young people. At least 22 other states are considering additional programs for teaching financial literacy, reports the New York Times. Dr. Carly Urban is an economics professor at the University of Montana and a former Badger. She researches personal finance education nationwide and says that generally, students in states that require financial literacy end up better financially. They tend to have higher credit scores, are less likely to be delinquent on their loans, and tend to make smarter decisions when it comes to funding their future education. Others have found in follow-up work that 10 years later, students who were required to have personal finance in high school were repaying their student loans at higher rates, and particularly students who were first-gen from lower-income families and went to public universities. And that carries racial disparities. When a state does not have any policy, so no requirements of any type, schools with predominantly white students are those with the most access to the, the standalone course. As the bill made its way through committee last spring, Wisconsin's Department of Public Instruction testified that their position was neutral. They asked that the bill be amended to consider how an additional required credit could affect students' elective coursework. And they expressed concern that the cost of a financial literacy course would unduly burden underserved school districts. But Senator Balwig says they amended some of the bill's language to address those concerns, and DPI changed their stance. Now, the law states that the personal finance requirement won't come into effect until the graduating class of 2028. So it gives some time for those students who are in or about to get into high school, do some planning also to figure out how that course is going to come about. And Dr. Urban says that implementing personal finance instruction is actually fairly inexpensive. Providers like Federal Reserve Banks and NextGen Personal Finance and other nonprofits are really good at developing curricula and training teachers completely free of charge. Last year, Braden Jackson, the bank teller and high school student, testified about the bill during a public hearing. He told lawmakers that a personal finance class in high school taught him about insurance, healthcare premiums, and how to save for retirement. He says young people need that knowledge more than ever. It's very important to educate our youth, especially with the growing expense of being an adult with rent, food expenses growing. I think it's very important to educate them now so they can start saving for retirement and don't have to pinch their pennies. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. It's now 6.16 p.m. You're listening to the live local news on WORT.
The Dane County Board is in the process of negotiating a lease agreement with the Air National Guard. In it, the National Guard would continue to use the Dane County Regional Airport for operations, but as it stands, the deal would also remove any liability if they further contaminate the surrounding environment with PFAS, or Forever Chemicals. WORT news producer Faye Parks spoke with Supervisor Yogesh Twala, uh, who also represents the Near East Side of Madison on the county board. And he and some of his colleagues are trying to make sure that the deal is fair and that it protects the environment. Thank you for joining me, Yogesh. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Can you give us a brief explainer on the background here? What kind of agreement is the county trying to iron out with the Air National Guard? And what are the benefits for both parties? Right now, the county is negotiating an airport joint use agreement with the National Guard. The purpose of this agreement is to have some parameters around the joint usage of the airport. The military is using the airport for their military operations. So this would extend through 2032, is that right? That's correct. And the current agreement has been expired for some time. I know it's been greater than a year. So there's just been an informal agreement with the Air Force right now, and they are looking to make that a formal agreement through the county signing a new airport joint use agreement. It looks like they would make a one-time $100 payment to the county, but then they'd also be providing firefighting services at the airport itself. Is that correct? That's correct. So as part of this, they would be providing firefighting services. And, and there is obviously some value to them providing firefighting services to the county. But we need to make sure that in exchange for those firefighting services that we're receiving, that we're not putting our community and our natural resources in potential undue harm. As we know, the state's Department of Natural Resources has pretty conclusively stated that a lot of the PFAS contamination in Madison is due to firefighting foam, which would obviously be used if they were to continue training on that site, that kind of thing. And in this agreement, your issue and some of your colleagues have joined you in this is the concern that the Air National Guard has asked to remove all liability. Yeah, and we have a a number of concerns here. I think the starting point to all this is, you know, we're looking at the PFAS pollution. The FAA in September approved using fluorine-free foam. It's F3 foam. And this is available from authorized vendors. And we have spoke to some of these vendors who have said that this product is available now. So we, we think the first thing, the baseline of any agreement should be that we will no longer use any firefighting foam that contains PFAS in it. That's a pretty common sense thing for all parties to agree to. If the FAA has approved it, if a vendor is currently producing it, if it does meet the military specifications, it is able to be used at airports such as the one that we have. So our first request is that any airport joint use agreement should explicitly state that we require the F3 foam so we don't spread any more PFAS chemicals. If they were to agree to those terms, would you be okay with them still not having any liability? Or is that something that you would like to add to the deal as well, that they would be liable for pollution? So what we did, myself and my colleagues on the board, the colleagues who signed this letter were Supervisor Heidi Weigleitner, Vice Chair of the Environment, Ag and Natural Resources Committee, Sarah Smith, and Jacob Wright and Michelle Ritt, who are on the Public Works Committee. 
one of the areas that we really want to address is indemnification and liability. As we know, there's already existing pollution on this site and that there have been a number of named parties who are responsible for this, the county, the DNR, the Air Force, and we want to make sure that any contract that we sign does not release and indemnify the military for existing PFAS contamination as well as future PFAS contamination. So we have to be really careful here that when we're signing a legal document that we're not letting anyone off the hook for something that they've already been named to be a responsible party for. So this comes not long after two large companies, DuPont and 3M, paid billions of dollars to municipalities across the country as compensation for the contamination that came from some of the products they've manufactured. If the National Guard was on the hook for pollution, how much could that cost them in the long run? One of the things that's really scary about this issue and makes it an, an emerging issue and makes us reevaluate things like airport joint use agreements is the fact that we don't really have any solution for these PFAS forever chemicals. We have some experimental bioremediation technologies. There's been certain filtering that's been tried and that's had mixed results. So we don't really have a solution. So if we don't know what the solution is, we can't put a price tag on that. And what makes this even more of a concerning issue for our community is the PFAS contamination happens in parts per trillion. So any amount of contamination is permanent contamination. And we've seen other communities that have had to switch from their municipal water to to bottled water because their drinking water gets contaminated. So putting a price tag on it, it's not even a value we can quantify right now. And that's why one of the requests that we have for this modification is fair compensation to our county for the human, environmental, and community health costs associated with this. What are the next steps? What is the approval process for this deal? Right now, What we did is we drafted a letter, and the letter went to the airport director, Kim Jones, the county lobbyist, Carrie Springer, our corporation counsel's office, Carlos Pavillon, and assistant corporation counsel, Amy Tutwiler. And we're seeking additional modifications to this contract, and we are also seeking additional information. As part of this letter, we also had an open records request where we wanted to see what the existing airport joint use agreement negotiations were so we can see had any of these issues been addressed. Has there been any attempt to, for example, require F3 PFAS-free foam as part of the agreement? So we want to find out what's happened in that regard. We also want to look at the termination clauses in this as well. If Dane County was to terminate this agreement or allowed to do that with 90 days notice, but we would be paying uh, punitive damages. That's written into the contract. If the Air Force was to terminate the agreement, they would not have any punitive damages. And there could be a situation where the airport terminates the agreement, and then we have to find our own firefighting services, and we would have to find those within 90 days. Right now, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. The next committee that will consider this will be the Personal and Finance Committee. They are meeting on December 18th. We've asked for a response to this letter that we have out there by December 15th. 
if we haven't gotten the answers that we're seeking, or if these negotiations with the Air Force would be ongoing, our request would be to have everything in this letter addressed before it's voted on by the Personnel and Finance Committee and before it gets forwarded to the entire county board for a vote. We can't modify a contract and then approve it. That, that contract has to be modified and signed before it comes to us. So what we're asking for is a renegotiation of the contract and for a new contract to be brought to the board. You mentioned that you currently do not have a joint use deal. The last one expired a while ago. Could things mm-hmm. continue as usual without any deal at all? Yeah, you know, that, that's a really good question. We've continued under this framework for a number of months, over a year, and this was brought to the board, but we want to make sure this is not brought to the board with a sense of urgency, like this has to be done tomorrow or this agreement will go away. Because if that was the case, there would have been a lot more of an effort to to expedite this process. So we feel there's been no disruption in airport operations. And we understand the desire to have a formal contract because it's never good to operate under an expired contract because if there was a you know calamitous situation, well, that makes things very complicated. So we do think we do need a contract in place. However, since there hasn't been that sense of urgency, we feel like it's appropriate to take time to answer these questions that we've laid out. And when the contract was brought to us to consider in my committee in the Environment, Ag, and Natural Resources Committee, that was in mid-November. And one thing that I did along with my colleagues was say like, okay, well, we know we have these issues. We will make sure by December 1st to get you a list of what our requests are. We'll do that in a formal letter. We will present that to everybody. We ask for a timeline for those questions to be answered. In that letter, we ask that to be December 15th, and that's the Friday before the Personnel and Finance Committee reconvenes on December 18th. So we're trying to do this as quickly as possible on the board side, and that's why as soon as we brought this in front of my committee, we wanted to provide dates and parameters around what we were intending to do so all the parties were aware of this. So we've been working to expedite the process on the board side, and I think that's, you know, that shows what an urgent issue this is for us and how how we would like to be good partners and trying to move this forward as efficiently as possible. So I believe that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I do want to stress the importance of our natural resources. We're seeing with climate change and in general, we're seeing our natural resources, which are vital for us, our drinking water is vital for us. The air we breathe is vital for us. And when we're looking at how we can move forward as a sustainable society, our first principles have to be to protect that which sustains us. And that's why we have this focus here. We understand there there is a mission at the airport, that there has been a lot of discussions around the F-35. And we want to stress that This conversation that we're having right now is what can we do to minimize the harm that's already been done? And what can we do going forward to prevent any of that same harm from being done again? Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Yogesh. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much. That was Supervisor Yogesh Chavla, who represents Madison's Near East Side on the Dane County Board. 
He and some of his colleagues are concerned that a pending lease deal between the county and the Air National Guard could lead to further PFAS contamination in Madison's groundwater. The deal, as it stands, would mean that the Guard is not liable for any pollution their operations might cause in the future. Supervisor Chavla says the county board is still in the fact-finding negotiation phase of this joint-use deal. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT's Dylan Brogan and Open Records attorney Tom Kamenick celebrate the holiday season by going over the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council's legislative wish list. Now, as always, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a discussion of general legal issues. Well, it's happened again. Hey, Tom, we're talking transparency talk today. And because of the holidays, uh, even organizations like the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council can have a holiday wish list. Isn't that right? Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is... Well, we have a very specific list, which we'll be going over. So here is uh, how the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, of which you are a member, uh, they think uh, our open government laws can be improved. So we'll start with one that is a big concern for anyone who is seeking open records, and and that is uh, the statutory time limits for responding to records requests. Just to kick things off, do we have one of those right now? No, we don't, and that leads to a whole lot of problems. You know, solid half of the complaints I get from people are, why is this taking so long? This is taking forever. That's because this statute doesn't create a time limit. It just says they have to respond, quote, as soon as practicable and without delay. And nobody knows what that means. Courts haven't given us a whole lot of guidance on that. All they've said is, well, it's kind of this reasonableness test, and it depends on how big the government agency is and how complex the response is. But we don't get any good guidance on it. The attorney general in his uh, open records compliance guide kind of helpfully says, yeah, 10 days should be good enough for most record requests, but that's constantly ignored. You're you're very lucky if you can get a response within 10 days often. So let's put a time frame in there. Plenty of states do it. The Federal Freedom of Information Act does it. If they need an extension for requests that are actually big and large, yes, let's have a, a mechanism in there to do that. But they were very optimistic when they wrote this law and it has not panned out. So let's fix that. And it would require a change in the, the state statute. So lawmakers and the governor would have to be on board. Yeah, all of these, we're talking about changing statutory language. Yes. All right. Well, it's a wish list for a reason, but uh, hopefully the politicians are listening. So another one is about recordings of closed meetings. So right now, the public has no ability to, to know what's happening or, or to know the specifics of these closed meetings. So talk us through this one, because um, you could see why, you know, government agencies do need to have private conversations from time to time. Yeah, and it's a question of do you trust them or not? Because once they go into closed doors, you don't know what they're actually talking about. They will tell you very broadly what the topic is and what the statutory exemption is. But do they stick to those topics? You don't know. I don't know. Oftentimes, the only time we we find out about 
violations like that is is there is a member who goes public and says you know i have to break the silence here we were talking about things we should not have been talking about and i objected that they ignored me but then they often get in trouble for doing that or at the very least they're kind of you know burning some bridges and making their work relationships a lot harder so the suggestion from the freedom of information council is they should have to record these sessions and keep them for, I don't know, a year, six months or something, maybe two years, so that if there is a challenge, the court, the judge can look at the closed session recordings and say, did they stick to the topic or not? And frankly, just knowing that they're being recorded, they will probably do a better job of staying on topic. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So to, to have some sort of review process after the fact. And um, that kind of gets us into uh, state records retention rules. So what are the rules now and, and, and what should change? The big thing we're looking at here is that there are state record retention laws that government agencies have to keep their records for certain periods of time. I'm not going to get into what those are because they're pretty complex. We'll talk about that a little later. But the big thing that FOIC wants to do is it wants to remove the exemption baked into state law for our legislators, our individual state assembly persons and senators don't have to keep their records. They can delete their emails the second they receive them. They can shred their papers. Doesn't matter. They are allowed to do that, which means that the public is only accessing the records that those legislators chose to keep. And there's there's no good reason for that. The legislators wrote it into the law because they wanted to, to make things easier for themselves. Okay, and interesting uh, that our next one has to do with the legislature, too. It has to do with eliminating open meeting exemption for legislative caucuses. Tell us what's the thinking behind this one. So this one's baked into state law, too. The, the open meetings law, by its language, does apply to the legislature. So when they meet, when the assembly meets, when the Senate meets, those doors must be open. Um, that's actually in our Constitution, too, that the, the doors to the assembly and Senate must be open at all times when they are in session. So that's good. But the legislators, when they wrote the open meetings law, they exempted their caucuses. So all the Republicans can go back into a closed room and talk and you never get to find out what they say. The same thing is true for the Democrats. Uh, they argue, well, we have to have some privacy so we can, uh, you know, cook the sausage so we can be we can have frank and honest discussions. And that's always the excuse. And if that was true, that you needed to have frank and honest and open discussions, then that should apply to everything. That should apply to city councils and school boards, too. But it doesn't. And the legislature isn't different and they should not be treated differently. Yeah, let's go back to the another one that has to do with the legislature. And like, is the open meetings law that applies to, our, like you said, city councils and county boards and all, all ten little town hall meetings that go on. What about the legislature? Um, didn't that change around the Big Act 10 fight? That didn't really change, but there was a strange court ruling. So the laws, the statutes themselves say the legislature, meaning the Senate and the Assembly, are subject to the open meetings law. They have to follow it. When Act 10 was passed, there was some question over... Technically, it was Act 32 at the point, but it was, this was the big change to public bargaining uh, laws. When it was passed, there was some dispute over whether they had followed provisions of the open meetings law requiring specific advance notice. And now the law already... A day's notice, right? Wasn't it a day or something? They didn't post it 24 hours in advance? It's a complex question. To, to get into it a little bit, the law says 24 hours 
But the law also says for the legislature specifically, or um, or as set forth in the rules of procedure for the Senate and the Assembly, and there were rules of procedure for the Assembly and Senate that allowed for less than 24 hours notice. So that was an issue too. But the Supreme Court did not get that far because the Supreme Court said the legislature is a co-equal branch of government. We do not have the authority as a court to require the legislature to abide by procedural requirements other than those set forth in the Constitution. So the Supreme Court said, we're not going to get into the weeds of was the language of the open meetings law followed. It was enough that their doors were open under the, which is what the Constitution requires. So FOIC says, let's change that and make the, the, uh, the legislature specifically subject to the open meetings law. That would probably have to be done in the Constitution itself to create greater requirements than simply open doors in the Constitution. So that's that's a messy change that would have to happen. But it's a it's it's a valuable one. Tom Kamenick, all we want for Christmas is transparency. So we'll do we got to do a part two on this one. Sound good? I think Mariah Carey needs to sing that one. We'll catch you next time. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. It's approaching mid-December and there's still no ice to be found. But no need to fear, there are still fish to be caught in the Madison area. Nate Weggehaupt and Pat Hasberg break down what's happening in this week's Fishy Business. Alrighty, it is Thursday, and that means that I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, we are back after a little bit of a break there. Took some time off for hunting and Thanksgiving and all that good stuff. But we're back here in the Madison area, and uh, yeah, there's no ice (laughs) anywhere. We were just talking before we started recording here that there's... Uh, no ice yet, and it sort of looks like no sign of ice. So before we sort of get into uh, what's going on around the area, uh, what's what's sort of the ice situation looking like at the moment? Well, not great. Uh, we did, you know, have a little cold snap there over Thanksgiving, and we had some ice up here on Cherokee Marsh on the north side. And there is still ice out there. It's definitely not safe. But um, I think best-case scenario right now is that we can – Maybe hold on to the what little ice is there, and then maybe if some cold weather comes through after the weekend, can kind of firm that back up. But uh, yeah, looking at the long range forecast into out to December twenty first, I think I was just looking, and it's not not looking great for making ice. Chillier, but not quite cold enough to make ice. So, fingers crossed. If anybody knows a way to send some cold weather down to Madison, that'd be great. Last year, I think it was Christmas Day that uh, Lake Mendota was officially completely frozen over. So, uh, I mean, we're still a little bit away from Christmas Day, but that, that's when it was completely frozen over. So, we, yeah, we are feeling like a little bit behind so far this year. But that does mean because there's no ice, that means that shore fishing is still, you know, totally, totally viable thing. So let's sort of start off sort of broad overview. What is uh, what's the fishing looking like around Dane County right now? Well, uh, there are still quite a few folks getting out doing some shore fishing, and and you can still launch a boat. Uh, Many of the piers around town have been pulled at the local launches, but they do still have one pier in over here at the Warner Park launch on the north side, and I I would assume they still have one in down at um, Olin. But, you know, those are just kind of the main launches uh, on the Madison chain. So folks are getting out in boats, though, because you can still launch. 
But the shore anglers are doing well for walleyes, especially along the university shoreline on Lake Mendota. Tenney Park break wall has been good. Warner Park break wall has been good. Uh, and then on Lake Winona, everywhere from basically the mouth of the Yahara River uh, all the way down to John Nolan Drive, that whole shoreline has been holding walleyes and, and continues to produce a lot of good-sized fish in that area, uh, mostly at night for folks. And now let's sort of move down the list, starting off with Lake Mendota. You mentioned it there, a lot of walleye coming out of there, but uh, what's the what's going on there? Well, I mean, that's really about it. I mean, I, th- there are some folks that I'm sure are getting some northern pike out there, but um, the bass action really slows down when the water gets this cold. And, yeah, with, without any ice, there just really isn't a lot going on. And let's move over to Monona. What's happening over there? Well, kind of the same deal, you know, some pike here and there. Uh, the musky season is still open until December 31st. So I get some calls for uh, musky suckers, which is a very popular bait this time of year. Uh, unfortunately, I'm out of musky suckers, and I think every place in town is because they get musky suckers out of ponds, um, and the ponds have enough ice that they can't get the musky suckers, but all the big water is open where the muskies live. So it's kind of a, kind of a tough spot everybody's in right now. And let's move over to Lake Wingra. I know there's some muskies in there as well. What's happening there? Yeah, uh, there are definitely muskies in there, and uh, I know uh, folks are folks are chasing them around over there. Uh, there has been a good uh, panfish bite though below the dam there that comes out of Lake Wingra, kind of by the hospitals. Um, some nice panfish uh, stacked up in there. So I've had a few folks in the shop actually right before we talked here. I had a guy in who's headed down there, and they've been doing well on bluegills and a few crappies mixed in there too. And let's move over to Lake Wabisa and sort of that area of lakes there. What's happening there? Well, uh, you know, Wabisa has a great musky population, so musky anglers are, are going to be out, I'm, I'm sure, this weekend uh, with the warmer weather. But um, I haven't heard of mu- much in the way of anything else coming out of there. Uh, panfish have moved into Upper Mud Lake. Uh, they had moved, started moving up there about a month ago. And they're still up there, so if you can launch a boat, there's no shore access to Upper Mud, but if you can launch a boat and get up there, you're bound to get into some good panfish. And a few walleyes are being picked up in the Babcock Park Bible Camp area there on the southeast end of the lake. And the final lake I want to look at today, Lake Kaganza. Have you been hearing anything coming out of there? Not much. Um, You know, there's a good bluegill population down there, so a lot of those fish are looking for weeds this time of year, so if, if you can... Uh, find some green weeds, you're likely to find some good panfish action. But uh, I just haven't heard much around the shop here. Like I said, it's it's just a, a tough time of year where it's cold and folks aren't quite getting out, but you're not quite cold enough to have ice. So we're just kind of in a holding period. And now the last bit of water that I want to touch on today, sort of speed through them, because like you said, there's it's a little bit uh, tricky time of year to be fishing. But uh, what's happening on the rivers? Have you been hearing anything out of any of the area rivers? The, the rivers have actually been producing some fish as well. Um, I would, if I was fishing the river, I would fish it at, at the dams. So on the Rock River, Indian Ford and Jefferson dams have been producing some walleye and sauger over there. On the Wisconsin River, the dams all the way up, you know, as far as you can go, you're likely going to find uh, pretty good walleye and sauger stacked up in, in, at those dams. I know at the Prairie du Sac Dam, you know, just north of here, they've been getting some good walleyes and Wisconsin Dells. Uh, Castle Rock, Petenwell dams, uh, all those have been uh, producing some good walleye. So, yeah, definitely some good opportunities to still get out and fish, but, boy, we sure could use some ice. (laughs) 
Yeah, we'll keep it a little bit brief today. Like you said, it, uh, hopefully by the next time we start recording, the ice starts to form and, uh, you know, we can start getting some ice fishing reports. It's that time of year. I have to go sharpen up my auger and get all of my stuff ready to go. So, Pat, just before we head out here for today, any final fishing advice for the people out there? Let's, let's think ice. I'd just like everybody to send their thoughts and prayers towards making some ice. <laughs> let's see if we can get some ice out here. I will echo that. Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one simple, easy-to-remember number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thanks again. Good luck up there, and uh, hopefully next time we talk, there's a little ice. Absolutely. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. While all may appear quiet these days at Bree Stevens Field, Forward Madison's technical staff are hard at work with plans to challenge for the 2024 USL One League title. On Monday, the club announced the return of eight of 2023's best players, including standout goalkeeper Burn Shipman. More now from head coach Mac Laser on Forward Focus. Hello again to everyone listening to WORT online and at 89.9 FM on your radio dial. Welcome to another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for FMFC-themed publication, New Dog Mazine. Joining me, as always, is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt. This past Monday, Forward Madison announced the re-signing of eight players from the 2023 campaign. Aiden Macias, Jacob Kroll, Nazim Bartman, Derek Gebhard, Baron Shipman, Timmy Mayle, Christian Cheney, and Captain Mitch Osmond. We sat down with the Flamingos head coach and technical director, Matt Glazer, to get his perspective on the signings, the season that was, and what 2024 might have in store. We are here with Matt Glazer, the head coach and technical director of Ford Madison Football Club. How are you, Matt? Hey, Andrew. How you doing? Doing well, Grant. Nice to see you as well. Yeah, doing good. Staying busy. Uh, it's that time of the year. So it's that we're in that second window uh, 
the first kind of window when the season ends is up until about Thanksgiving to kind of get some get some signings done, get some work done. We're kind of in that secondary window now uh, leading up to Christmas. And then there's kind of a third one uh, in January. So we're, we're right in the middle of that sort of uh, second window busy. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, lots going on. What have you been up to since the end of the season? Hopefully you're uh, getting some time away from the game a little bit. Yeah, uh, took uh, took a little bit of a of a break. Um, got out of town for for about a week, and, and that was really nice. And uh, but mostly, it's been uh, right back to it. Obviously, a lot of work to to resign some players that that we wanted to, to resign, and that was sort of like the the first bit up until uh, the end of uh, November. And yeah, just just busy. Really, the, the staff and I cracking away on uh, on signing players for for twenty twenty four and, and uh, trying to get the team stronger. And Matt, you mentioned, you know, you've started signing players and, you know, when this comes out, um, there will already have been a bunch of guys that have been signed and you kind of started it off on Tuesday uh, with the captain, uh, Mitch Osmond. Can, you know, can you talk a little bit about that that signing? Yeah, obviously, obviously, look, our our big strategy, you know, it's no secret, our, our sort of big strategy has been to to return a core group. Uh, Mitch is, has been the captain uh, for, for me since I came to the club. Um, you know, he's, a, he's obviously just sort of that steadfast leader on our back line, uh, vocal, professional, lead by example, um, has done a great job, I think, in his, his second season um, as a leader and, and uh, kind of helping us establish a, a culture that, that we want to have at Fort Madison. And uh, yeah, obviously massive to, to get Mitch back in the fold and, and have him continue on that leadership pathway for us. The club also announced the return of uh, Baron Shipman this next year, who quite honestly proved me wrong on my initial assessment of him last season. How important is it to have a, a goalkeeper that really knows, you know, a sort of core back line uh, back in the team next season? Yeah, it's massive. I mean, Burned, uh, you know, we thought Burned had a strong year. Obviously, I think, he, you know, 12 shutouts on the year and, and um, just uh, just a really like the thing that I really like about Burned to, to kind of cut to it is that he's just he's super composed. I've said it a bunch of times. He's he's very composed in the back. And, and uh, even when maybe things aren't going our way or we make a mistake here or there or, or um, whether the game's going our way or not, he, he I think he's been able to make big plays for us, make big saves, which is what first and foremost, what you need in your in your goalkeeping. And, uh, and then obviously compo- just composure. He's a calm guy. Uh, he communicates the right way. He knows how to, how to, to deal with the, with the players um, back there and good with his feet. And, and uh, yeah, we're just happy to, to get some consistency and continuity in that position. Uh, another player that you guys signed would be a guy who's been here now going on to his, I think, his fourth season here. Um, that's Derek Gebhardt. Talk a little bit about uh, DG and what his, uh, his influence is to the club. Yeah, I thought I thought uh, you know Derek was probably our our. I mean, look, we only returned four guys, but he was. I think I would say he was our most improved player in terms of what we had asked him to do. Sort of in the off season between 2022 and 2023 was was come in uh, come in as fit as possible, um, come in sharp. And I think he he came into preseason last year with like a, a, ch- a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, maybe a point to prove and. Um, I think it reflected in in his performances, you know, six goals, I think three assists, something like that. Uh, just had it. I think he was our second leading scorer on the season. And you look, Derek, uh, he's versatile. He can play a couple of different roles, uh, kind of in that wide wingback role with his 1v1 ability. He can play up top. Um, yeah, he just he just came in and kicked on and, and we thought had a, had, a, had a strong year for us. And he, he knows the league. He obviously is comfortable in, in the city. He's a good teammate, good professional. So we're, we're really excited to, to have Derek back. Between now and the preseason, 
What is your main goal? It's recruiting. I mean, I can say it's it's been 95% re- uh, recruitment. Uh, there's a lot of time and energy that goes into that process at this level. Um, so that's not just me as like the sort of technical director. Like we don't, we don't have a scouting department. The scouting department is me and the coaches, you know, so um, that's, that's the work that gets done. It's casting a wide net. It's um, it's not saying no to, to any, any player um, profile where we're looking at, at, we're watching tons of video hours of film. Uh, that's what the staff and I are, are putting some, most of our efforts into at this moment. And then, Obviously, a you know, a bit of a reflection on on 2023. What what things you know from an analysis standpoint can be improved. Um, but you know, it's really it's really been at this moment uh, getting the best possible pieces in, returning the guys that we want first and foremost, and getting the best possible pieces in that can add to our environment, that can that can help us uh, score goals and, and prevent and goals on the other side. And and uh, yeah, that's that's what it is. And then obviously, as we as we get closer to preseason, it will become more back to sort of our our normal job, which is, which is, uh, coaching and, and football oriented and, and planning a preseason and, um, and, and really trying to dial in some of the, the, the analysis bits to, to what we can improve for next year and how we can make the training sessions better and, uh, make the style of play even more clear and, and easier for the players to digest. And, and how can we create more chances to score? And we'll get into all that stuff. But I think at this moment, it's, we try to look at it like let's get the best the best that we can get for our buck and then um and then uh and then we kind of take it from there and and mold and manipulate and, and try to get the best out of that group and that'll do it for this week's episode special thanks to fmfc's head coach and technical director matt glazer for coming on this week andrew and i will be back in two weeks with another episode and we'll be here all off season long bringing you all the news and stories from around the club. For WORT, this has been Ford Focus. That's going to do it for our show tonight. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Special thanks to feature contributors Dylan Brogan and Tom Kamenick, Nate Weikehaupt and Pat Hasberg, and the Forward Focus crew. Nicole Alley engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't forget, you never have to miss an episode of The Local News when you subscribe to it as a podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Keep listening and good night.